When I was 10 years old, my family moved to the Philippines. My father, uh, his name was Ron Carlson, he was a uh, well-known Christian apologist, and uh, his area of expertise was the non-Christian cults, uh, those groups that claim to be Christian but often uh, pervert the, the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the mid-1980s, when our family uh, moved to the Philippines, a number of mission organizations had invited my father to come and, and help them, as this was a period in the history of the Philippines where uh, a number of different cult groups had been literally flooding the Filipino islands with, with a message of a false gospel. Uh, one of those groups that had uh, moved into the Philippines in the mid-1980s was the group known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And in 1985, the Mormons opened up a large new temple in the suburbs of Manila in the Philippines. And so uh, a variety of missionary organizations had invited my father to come and to help equip them to respond to this growing challenge, this new cult that had moved into the Philippines and was seeking to lead the people of the Philippines astray into a false gospel. The, uh, the Mormons had a grand opening over the course of two weeks where they were basically giving tours of the temple. Now, Mormons will typically never let anyone into the temple except when they have their grand openings. They'll do a two-week grand opening where they'll allow the public to come in and view the temple and take tours of the temple. But after that, the temple is closed to Mormons alone. And so my, my dad and his missionary friends decided this grand opening would be a great time to get the word out uh, about the truth about what Mormonism really teaches and believes. Well, the Mormons, they had recruited uh, dozens of jeepney drivers in the Philippines to, to shuttle people to the Mormon temple. Now, a jeepney in the Philippines is basically the primary mode of public transportation. They're basically these, these mini buses that are just tricked out with all kinds of crazy designs and, and uh, graphics and music blaring. And, and uh, there's thousands of these all over the Philippines. Uh, that people use for public transportation. And the Mormons had hired uh, a couple dozen jeepney drivers to go throughout Metro Manila and bring people to the grand opening. Well, my dad, he and his buddies had developed a a gospel track to give to the Filipino people. And it was a great track to pass out in a, in a, country that's 95% Roman Catholic, which, which the Philippines is. Uh, on the cover of this gospel track, there was a picture of the Virgin Mary. And, and on the outside of the track, it said, was the Virgin Mary really a virgin? And when you open up the inside cover, it says the Mormon church says no. Well, the Mormons literally teach and believe that God has a body of flesh and bone. And, and Mormons believe that God physically came down to planet Earth and had physical relations with the Virgin Mary to produce Jesus Christ. And so Mary wasn't literally a virgin, that she had had physical relations, not just physical relations, but with God himself. That's the teaching of the Mormon church. Well, well, in a Catholic country, friends, when you start messing around with the Virgin Mary, you know, you're, you're asking for trouble. And, and all of these jeepney drivers, they were Catholics. And so when they discovered what the Mormons were really teaching, uh, they told my dad and his buddies, hey, before we take anybody into the gates for the tour, we're going to have them stop outside on the street corner and talk to you guys and make sure everybody gets a gospel track telling them what Mormons really teach and believe. 
Well, you can imagine when the Mormons found out about this, they weren't too excited about that, right? Uh, Dozens of Jeeps would come and my dad and his buddies would expose the truth about Mormonism and give them a true gospel track. And and then they would go and take the tour of this false religion. And uh, the Mormons were really upset about this. And uh, a couple days into this, uh, a couple big Mormon missionaries from Samoa, they looked like big sumo wrestlers. Uh, they came outside and they came up to my dad and they, they nudged themselves up against, against him really close. And, and one of them whispered in my dad's ear, if you don't get out of here, we're going to knock your teeth in. And my dad said, well, that's real loving. Here's a track. And, and, uh, and the other Mormon Samoan next to him said, no, you don't understand. If you don't leave, we're going to kill you. Well, in a third world country, friends, you have to take threats like that seriously. And my dad discovered the reality of that just about an hour later as he was witnessing to a group of Mormons on the street corner right across from the entrance to the temple. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a white Toyota sedan come speeding down the road. And at the last minute, this Toyota swerved into the corner trying to hit my dad. My dad miraculously saw it at the last minute. He jumped out of the, out of the way of this car and the car accidentally clipped one of the Mormon missionaries and sent him sprawling across the curb. Well, when this happened, dozens of Mormons came running out from the temple, just yelling at my dad, shouting at my dad, get out of here, we don't want you here, who do you think you are? And uh, my dad just, you know, he just said to himself, Lord, what am I going to do? You know, this is only the second day, we still have two more weeks out here. And my dad said to himself, what would the Apostle Paul do? The Apostle Paul would probably start preaching the cross. And so my dad took out his Bible and he pointed up to the Mormon temple. He said, where's the cross? There's no salvation without the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, have you ever noticed on a Mormon church or a Mormon temple, you'll never see a cross anywhere on a Mormon church or a Mormon temple. You see, the Mormons, they despise the cross of Jesus Christ. In Mormonism, the cross has has nothing to do with our salvation. In Mormonism, salvation comes through membership in the Mormon church, through baptism in the Mormon church, through practicing the laws and ordinances of the Mormon church, through doing temple work on behalf of the Mormon church. Mormonism is a system of human works and regulations and legalism whereby people try to earn their salvation and ultimately evolve to become gods themselves. That's the goal in Mormonism. But there's never a cross on any Mormon church, any Mormon temple. In fact, Mormons despise the blood of Jesus so much that in their communion services, they use water instead of grape juice or wine because they want no representation of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And my dad pointed out to the Mormons, where's the cross? And one of the Mormon elders, he yelled out to my father, he said, the cross is foolishness. The cross is foolishness. Well, when he said that, the Holy Spirit just pricked my dad's heart and he had his gospel, his little New Testament gospel with him. And he handed it to the Mormon elder and he said, sir, would you read a passage of scripture for me? And he handed him his Bible and asked him to read 1 Corinthians 1.18. And this Mormon elder opened up the Bible and read these words. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My dad said to this Mormon elder, he said, Sir, the Bible says you are perishing. You are perishing. And this Mormon elder slammed the Bible and gave it back to my dad and marched back into his pagan temple. How sad. Now I share this story with us this morning because there is a battle 
raging today for the heart of the gospel. And it's a battle that's been waged since the very first lie the serpent told Eve in the Garden of Eden. Oh, eat of the fruit. You can become like God. The battle for the gospel is a battle over whether God's promises are true or not. It's a battle over whether God's grace alone is sufficient or not. It's a battle over whether our security and worth is based in Christ or not. The battle for the gospel is the ultimate battle in the war for truth. And it's this battle that we find at the heart of the book of Galatians. You see, friends, the the true message of the gospel, the, the message of the cross is that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift, and it comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if, friends, if there's just one thing that you remember from our message this morning, understand today this, Jesus Christ plus anything else is not the gospel. Jesus plus anything else is a false counterfeit gospel. And this truth, friends, what you see on the screen behind me is at the heart of everything that we're going to be studying in the coming weeks in the book of Galatians. See, you need to understand this this morning. The battle for the gospel is a battle for the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And this battle for the gospel is not just seen in non-Christian cults like Mormonism, but the battle for the gospel can be seen in a whole host of errors that seek to distort and manipulate and change the true message of the cross. And these errors can be found outside as well as inside the Christian church. Now what's important for us to recognize this morning is that these errors all fall under a common one-word banner. And that word is legalism. We're going to be talking a lot about legalism in our series through the book of Galatians. And what is legalism? Well, understand this today. Legalism is anything that promotes working in our own power and according to our own rules in order to earn righteousness and favor with God. This is legalism working in our own power according to our own rules in order to earn favor and righteousness in the eyes of God. Now, if you're thinking about this, we can clearly see legalism uh, in the various cults and religions of the world, right? What is religion? Religion is about our human efforts to try to make ourselves right with God. That's what religion is. And so when you study the various cults and religions, what you find is they all offer a system of works and rituals and techniques whereby men and women try to make themselves right with God. That's religion. We, we, we work our way to salvation through, through our good works, through our sacrifices, through our rituals, through our money, through a membership in a particular church. But it's all about what we do to try to make ourselves right in the eyes of God. And legalism is at the very heart of human religion. But legalism is not just found in the religions of the world. Legalism can also rear its ugly head within the church. And most often in the form of churches and individuals that believe our standing before God is based upon what we do. This is a false idea, friends. But sadly, many Christians embrace this wrong idea. 
that our standing before God is based upon what we do. I remember as a young boy visiting my cousins uh, down in Southern California. I always loved to go visit my cousins, but when I was young, I began to notice there, there was something very different about the faith, the Christianity that my cousins embraced, that their family embraced. As I got older, I discovered what it was. They, they belonged to a very fundamentalist Baptist church. And, and, and their fundamentalist Baptist church was wrapped up in a, in a huge system of legalistic works that they believed they had to perform in order to be right in the eyes of God. And so when I would go to my cousin's house and we'd visit them, I, I would notice things like they, 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 they weren't allowed to watch TV. They, they weren't allowed to watch movies. They, they weren't allowed to, to listen to secular music. They wouldn't even be allowed to listen to most Christian music. And their youth group every Saturday morning would go door-to-door witnessing. Now, again, not that that's a bad thing, but it was a requirement for them to be members of this youth group and members of this church. You had to faithfully go door-to-door witnessing. And they had a strict conservative dress code. They had specific clothes that they were called to wear, not only to church on Sunday mornings, but throughout their daily lives. And they had this whole system of works and regulations that they had to perform in order to attempt to earn favor and standing with God. And they often viewed other Christians who didn't adhere to their same standards. They often viewed them in a way where, where they would look down upon those other Christians. Friends, this is what legalism can look like in the church. It's not just a threat in the non-Christian religions of the world, but legalism can creep into the Christian faith itself. The true gospel, however, is not that God's favor is based on what we do for him. Okay, The true gospel is not that God's favor is based on what we do for him. It's all about what he's done for us. You see, legalism points to the rules and says, do this. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ points to the cross and says, done. It is finished. There's nothing you need to do to earn favor and standing with God. Jesus Christ has done it all for us. And so friends, as we're going to see, this issue is where the battle lines are drawn in the book of Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians is a frontal assault against anyone or anything that would dare compromise the simple beauty of the gospel as our means of salvation and as the basis for our standing with God. Now, as we begin our series this morning, I'd like to give you a little background to to help us better understand the broader context of what we're going to be studying in the coming weeks as we look at the book of Galatians. To begin with, let's take a look at uh, geographically. What what, what are we talking about here? Well, Galatia was a region in in the country that we know as modern-day Turkey. And, And Galatia is basically this area right in the center of Turkey. And Galatia was a place that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. When he was commissioned by Jesus Christ to go as an apostle to the Gentiles, his first missionary journey, which took place roughly around AD 46 to 48, the apostle Paul went to this region known as Galatia, and he planted a number of churches there, uh, Antioch and Pisidia, Lystra, Iconium, Derby. All of these churches are churches that Paul visited and planted. And if you want to read more about this, it's found in Acts chapters 13 and 14. 
Paul's first missionary journey. But the book of Galatians comes out of the fact that after Paul had left the region of Galatia and returned back to his home base in Syria, what had happened was a group of false teachers had come into these young churches that Paul had planted. Now, historians have come to call these false teachers the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, what they did is they came and they began to cast doubt on Paul's authority. They told these young churches that Paul wasn't a true apostle of Jesus Christ. And not only did they cast doubt on Paul's authority, they began to literally change the nature of the gospel that Paul had planted there in these new believers, in these new churches. The Judaizers said that faith in Christ alone was not enough for your salvation. The Judaizers believed that salvation was a matter of faith in Jesus plus faithfully keeping the Mosaic laws of the Old Testament. And so they were telling these young Christians that it wasn't just Jesus alone, but it was Jesus plus the works of the Old Testament law. So you had to become circumcised. You had to follow all the dietary restrictions. You had to follow all the rules and regulations in the Mosaic law in order to earn a right standing with God. Now, obviously, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Galatians were being deceived. They were being led astray. And so Paul writes this letter to refute this legalistic system that these false teachers were bringing into these young churches. What we're going to see as we study the book of Galatians is is that it's Paul's defense of the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Galatians historically is one of the, the most important, most influential books in the Bible. It's a book that literally saved the doctrine of grace in the early church. And it's a book that's been a clarion call for the freedom that we can find in Jesus Christ ever since. So I'm really excited as we look the next few weeks at the book of Galatians, because my prayer is that we're going to fall more in love with the gospel as we study this book together. That was Paul's goal for these churches in the first century, and it's the Lord's goal for us today. I want to I read the first section of our study this morning. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And, and when we come back from our reading, I want to highlight three particular sections that we see in this first section of Scripture this morning. I want to I highlight how we see grace dispatched, grace declared, and grace deserted here in these opening verses in the book of Galatians. Galatians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As I have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be 
eternally condemned. It's a powerful opening to the letter of Galatians. Grace dispatched, grace declared, grace deserted. Three sections that we're going to look at this morning. Paul begins his letter highlighting the fact that God had dispatched grace through Paul and his message of the gospel. Paul begins his letter in verses 1 and 2 by reaffirming his authority in response to the accusations of the false teachers. They were claiming that Paul wasn't really an apostle. And so so Paul starts his letter by basing his authority on two bedrock truths. Number one, Paul says his authority was based on the fact that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul points to his apostleship. Now the word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, it means one who is sent with a message. Paul was one who had been sent with a message by Jesus Christ. Alan Cole, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, says to the Jew, the word apostle was well-defined. It meant a special messenger with a special status, enjoying an authority and a commission that came from a body higher than himself. Now, we're going to talk more about Paul's call to be an apostle this next week when we look at some of Paul's testimony about his personal salvation. But but today, what's important for us to understand is that Paul's authority was based on the fact that he had been called by Jesus. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now the office of the apostle was a one-time role in the early church. There are no apostles today, friends. Understand that. And the reason we know that there are no genuine apostles today is because the biblical qualifications to be an apostle were very specific. You had to be someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to have been taught by Jesus Christ himself. And you had to have been sent out by Jesus Christ himself. There's no mention of any kind of apostolic succession anywhere in the New Testament because it was a limited office in the early church. It was a special group that God had called to advance his gospel in those early days of the church. So if you ever hear somebody today claiming the title of apostle for themselves, you can know immediately that that person is either a liar, they've been deceived, or they simply don't understand the truth about what the Bible teaches. But there are no living apostles in our world today, regardless of what somebody might claim for themselves with that title. Paul, however, was a true apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only does he back his authority on his apostleship, but secondly, he backs his authority on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, here's the reality. Paul's pointing to his commission by Jesus was really meaningless if Jesus was nothing than just a good moral teacher. But that wasn't Paul's claim. Paul's claim was that Jesus was more than just a good teacher. Jesus was the resurrected Savior and Lord. Jesus was God in human flesh who verified that claim by rising from the grave. And all throughout Paul's ministry, he pointed back to the resurrection as the basis for his authority to be one who goes on mission for Jesus. It was the resurrection that gave the message of the gospel meaning and power and vitality. It was the fact that Jesus Christ had conquered the grave. That was the fuel that spread the early church in a hostile first century culture, inundated by Jewish law, oppressed by Roman 
imperial authority. What caused the early church to spread? It was the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about that, I'd encourage you to go online and, and listen to the sermon I preached on Easter Sunday this past year, where we talked about the evidence for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. We can have confidence that Jesus truly did conquer the grave. That was the basis for Paul's authority. He stood on the resurrection of Jesus and his call by Jesus. And that was the basis for his authority in responding to these false teachers in Galatia. The second section we see in our passage this morning is Paul declares the grace of God right at the outset of his message to the Galatians. Friends, what they needed most as they were straying from the truth of the gospel was to be reminded of the essential nature of what the gospel was all about. And in verses 3 through 5, Paul summarizes the entirety of the gospel message. I mean, this is just such a beautiful depiction of the gospel in these two verses here, verses 3 through 5. Paul, first of all, points out the means of salvation. He says the means of our salvation is grace. It's grace. How are we saved? We're saved by the grace of God. God freely provides for us what we do not deserve. It was a gift, a gift of God's love for us. And, you know, in a couple months, we're going to be celebrating Christmas once again. And why is Christmas so special? One of the reasons we love Christmas is because we receive gifts from our loved ones. And friends, a gift is only a gift if it's freely given. If someone makes you earn it or work for it, it's not a gift. But the grace that we experience in Jesus Christ was freely given. And Paul reminds the Galatians of this right at the outset. Secondly, he tells them that the nature of our salvation is peace. We've been given grace, but we've also been given peace, the opportunity to be reconciled to our holy creator, God. You know, a lot of people in our world today are looking for a source of life, a source of joy, a source of peace. Friends, God alone is the source of life. And if you're not connected to him, you're never going to know true life. But, but the problem is our sin separates us from God and his holiness. But God was not content to leave us separated. And so God himself gave us this gift of grace to bring reconciliation to us, reconciliation with him to give us peace with God. Paul reminds the Galatians of this right at the outset here. Not only does he share the means of salvation and the nature of salvation, but he goes on to highlight the source of our salvation. He says the source of our salvation is God's will. It was God's will that we would be saved. God is the one who initiated our rescue. And so friends, understand this. We can't take any credit at all for our salvation. It was all about God's grace. We were dead in our sins. We couldn't do anything to save ourselves. But God stepped out and initiated this rescue mission. It reminds me of when I was a kid, our family was on a trip out to Hawaii I was in high school, and I remember we were at Waimea Bay on the north shore of Oahu, some of the largest waves in the world in Waimea Bay. They, ha they have some of the biggest surfing competitions there every year. And, and as I was playing in the sand with my brother, all of a sudden I heard all these whistles start blaring out, and I saw these lifeguards racing down the beach, jumping up into the water, swimming out into these massive 10, 15-foot waves. And there was a man laying next to a surfboard face down in the water. And the lifeguards swam out and they rescued this gentleman. And they brought him back into shore. 
And later I discovered that this man had been knocked unconscious by his surfboard. He was floating in the water face down. He was on his way to drowning, to perishing. But those lifeguards saw him in his desperate plight. They initiated that rescue. They swam out to save him and bring him safely back to shore. And this is what God has done for us in our salvation. We couldn't save ourselves. We were dead and drowning, dying in our sins. But God, in his great love, initiated this rescue to bring us back into a right relationship with him. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the true biblical gospel that Paul is going to proclaim throughout the book of Galatians. Thirdly, this morning, we see the fact that the Galatians had been deserting the true message of the gospel. That's the whole point of this letter, is Paul wants to warn these Galatian Christians who had strayed from the truth of the gospel. In verses 6 through 9, we read of Paul's motivation for this letter. Paul begins here in verse 6 by noting his astonishment. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel of grace. He's astonished that they're deserting. The, the word deserting in Greek is metatithami, and, and, and it basically means to change allegiances. In the first century, it referred to a soldier that, that went from fighting for one side to fighting for the other side. Probably the, the closest equivalent today would be if you showed up at U.S. Bank Stadium when the Vikings were playing the Packers and everybody was wearing cheese heads that morning, right? Well, I guess that's probably not a good illustration. That's what happens most uh, times when the Vikings and Packers play. But, but basically, you know, it's when, it's when you change allegiances, you switch from one team to the next. That's what Paul says the Galatians had done. I'm astonished. I can't believe it. would be like Pastor Rick coming in tomorrow morning telling me, Jason, I'm a Packer fan now. I would be shocked. It would be so out of character. But the Galatians had deserted the true gospel. Not only that, but Paul says they'd left the true gospel for one that is really no gospel at all. See, the Judaizers claimed that they were promoting the true gospel, but Paul says it was no gospel. How was it no gospel? Because they were offering a message that said Jesus plus all of these works of legalism in order to earn favor and standing with God. But friends, remember, what does the word gospel mean? The word gospel means good news. How is demanding impossible human achievement in order to earn favor with God? How is that good news? There's nothing good about it. The gospel of legalism isn't good news. It's bad news. Paul says it's no gospel at all. Not only that, but Paul goes on and he says that these Judaizers were perverting the gospel of Christ. How are they perverting the gospel? By adding to the very nature of the gospel. They were corrupting the gospel itself. Friends, it would be like if I took you out for coffee this afternoon. And as we're sitting over in Northwoods Roastery having a cup of coffee, I, I pulled out a syringe filled with poison and I squirted a couple drops of poison into that cup of coffee. Well, would you drink that coffee? No, absolutely not, right? But, but here's the thing. It still looks like coffee. It's mostly coffee. But you know what? That tiny drop of poison changes everything. It distorts and perverts its very nature. And the same is true with religious works and legalism. As soon as you add anything to the gospel of grace, you lose it altogether. 
In verses 8 through 9, then we read Paul's strongest words in the opening letter to the Galatians. Paul says in verses 8 through 9, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. You know, it's amazing to me how prophetic Paul's words are here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Throughout history, Satan has used angelic messengers to distort and twist the gospel, perverting the true message of grace. In fact, when you study the religions of the world, you'll find numerous examples where an angel from heaven revealed a different gospel. Paul warns us here that we need to be on alert for these fraudulent angelic messengers. In fact, look at what he tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul tells us that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And it's interesting, friends, when you study the history of the world's religions, how many of these religions were influenced by angels of light. The religion of Buddhism, for example, Siddhartha Gautama says that the night of his enlightenment, he wrestled with angels. The religion of Islam was started when the prophet Muhammad was visited by the angel Gabriel. The Jehovah's Witnesses have claimed throughout history that the Watchtower organization is guided and directed by angels. Mormonism started when Joseph Smith was visited by an angel named Moroni. The Seventh-day Adventist, Ellen G. White, the founder of the Adventist church, says that she had an accompanying angel that revealed to her hidden truths in Scripture. Yoga of Hinduism, the entire goal of yoga is not exercise. It's a 2,000-year-old religious practice designed to possess you with the kundalini spirit of light. Friends, Satan will use any means possible to cause us to stumble, fall away, or even desert the one true gospel. He'll even masquerade as an angel or a spirit guide. He comes dressed in splendor, offering life and hope and peace, but what he offers are counterfeits laced with poison. Paul says, anyone who preaches another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. The Greek word is anathema. It refers to the curse of God or eternal damnation. And this curse that Paul ends our passage with this morning is a firm warning to all of us that the gospel must remain our first priority as followers of Jesus Christ. We must uphold it. We must defend it. We must cherish it. The gospel is essential. And friends, you've heard us here at Lakes Free over the years. Pastor Rick used to say it. I've said it many times. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing, friends, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to focus on in our coming weeks as we study the book of Galatians. That's what we're going to champion as a church. And that's what I hope and pray God uses to continue his transforming work in all of our lives. May we be inspired and motivated and fall more and more in love with God as we come to learn the beauty of the gospel. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these opening words in the book of Galatians. And I just pray, Lord, that as we study the good news of the gospel in the coming weeks, that we would fall more deeply in love with you, that we would experience greater freedom in our relationship with you, that we would be inspired to live and champion the hope of the gospel to a lost and dying world that needs to know the beauty and grace that is found in you. So we thank you, Lord, for this book. We thank you for the opportunity to study your truth. May it illuminate and bless our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now I leave you with these words from Revelation chapter 1. 
or Revelation 22, 21. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all God's people. Amen.